Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Thanks, Meg. Way to get me to cry before I even, like, you know, (laughs) tell my story. Um... I'm Rachel. I'm alcoholic. What a pleasure it is to be here. Thanks, Lee, for asking me to come and for everyone that helped make this weekend possible. Um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the best place on earth. Um, AA is magic. It really is. And if you don't feel that way about AA yet, or if you've been in AA a long time and it doesn't feel magic to you anymore, um, I hope what you get from my message is that there's hope for you that you too can feel that way. Um, you know, Terry, you were describing like how you felt, you know, when you finally like told the truth in your story and it felt like you were in a safe place and you were bonded with other people through your pain. And I was just thinking like, oh my God, that's exactly what I have here, but I'm not only bonded with these people by pain, I'm bonded with them in a common solution in this big, incredible life that I've gotten from God in AA. And um, two of the greatest gifts I got from AA, number one, I never have to drink again. Number two, I never have to be alone. And um, I'm grateful to be here. So thank you. And, um, and thanks again, Meg. You're really important to me, too. Um, my sobriety date is October 7th of 2008. Uh, I have a sponsor. She's in the front row hugging Meg. It's Masoon right there. <laughs> and I love her dearly, and I'm really grateful for all the time that she has given me, and I'm grateful to all the um, women that have sponsored me that have given me their time and attention and experience. Um, and I have a home group. And uh, if you don't have those three things, uh, you got to get them. That's the foundation of my sobriety. My sobriety date's the day that my life began. Um, more important to me than my birthday. I mean, my birthday just means I'm, like, getting older, you know, which is also a good thing. But, you know, like, the day, my sobriety date, the longer I stay sober um, in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more that day means to me than it did, you know, the day that I walked in. And um, and it's a day. If you're new, my sobriety date, since that day, I've been abstinent from alcohol, drugs, chugging two bottles of NyQuil, like, swallowing a whole bottle of Benadryl, like, you name it. You know what I mean? Like, since that day, um, you know, I've been free of mind and mood-altering substances. And um, and my sponsor, um, you know, is someone that, that took me through the steps. Um, she's someone I run my thinking by, you know, she knows what's going on with me. And, um, I've had a sponsor ever since I got sober and I just feel so blessed and grateful to be in a place today where there's just, there's nothing I'm afraid to tell her. And I know she will never judge me. She will always love me, meet me with the truth, compassion and understanding. And so, um, that's what a sponsor has been for me, my whole sobriety. And, um, and then a home group is like my address in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not original. I did not make that up. And uh, it is from many other AA speakers that have been sober a lot longer than me. But really, like, you can find me sitting in the same seat in the front row of my meeting since it became my home group in um, 2010. It's the Miami Young People's Group. We meet 
on Saturday nights at 8 in South Miami. We also meet Tuesday nights at 7.30 in Coral Gables, and all are welcome. If you're ever in Miami, I really hope you come. Get my number. I'll pick you up. I'll bring you there. And, um, and, uh, and my first home group was the Tampa Bay Young People's Group. That's where I got sober. And, uh, you know, and I'll just say this about a home group, because really, like, if you don't have one, you got to get one. Um, it's not just the hour that I'm sitting in the meeting. It's the hours before. It's the hours after. Um, it's the other meetings I'm in during the week, because I go to other meetings with members of my home group. We ride around town together. It's how it's been ever since I got sober, you know? And um, and with these people, it's like I know their families, like they know mine. I've shown up to their graduations, to their weddings. I've been to their funerals, you know. I've showed up when their parents have been sick. They've showed up, you know, when um when I've been in the same situation with my husband's parents, right? Like we are intimately involved in each other's lives, and that's what a home group is to me. And I promise, Lee, I tell these stories, but um, you know, like. In my home group, we had this guy who was a member of my home group for a while, and, you know, he had been in and out of AA for a long time, like probably 15, 20 years. And um, and he had finally been sober, like, three years in my group, and I knew him when I lived in Tampa. And then, like, he just little by slowly, like, his life got really good, and he just started doing less in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and he overdosed and died. And, um, you know, the members of my home group, we rented a van, I fit like, I don't know, 14 people. We got in it. We had other cars um, with other people in my home group. And we drove up to Tampa just to go to his funeral so we could show up for his family and look them in the eye and say that your son was happy in AA for three years. And we know you didn't get to see it, but we did. And um, and his sister ended up working at a place that I would go to work at. And I would have breakfast with her. And she just wanted me to tell her stories about her baby brother. And, um, and like, just two weeks ago, another young guy in my home group who was, like, the sweetest guy, like, he died, you know, from alcoholism. And, like, within days of his mom found him on Mother's Day. And, um, and within, like, a day of his death, I get, like, an invitation for a photo album on my phone called John Marco. And, uh, and I accept. And within like an hour, there were like over a thousand photos of him and other members in my home group at fellowship, on camping trips, at men's weekends, in AA meetings, making music together, just flooded my phone so that we could then share that album with his family and show them all the memories that we created with him. And that's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's what we do in my home group. So if you don't have a home group, get one, because that's the kind of stuff that happens there. And I honestly, God, don't know how I'd be sober and how I would have learned how to grow up, go from being 21 years old, coming into AA to where I am now, learn how to have kids, raise a family, get a job, be a worker, be a sponsor, be a friend, be a daughter, be a sister, right? Like be a wife. I couldn't have learned how to do any of that stuff without a home group and the people in it. I really couldn't have. So... Um, get a sobriety date, a sponsor, and a home group, uh, and a whole new world um, will open up for you here in AA. So if you don't hear anything else I say, that's really like the most important stuff. <laughs> um, and I always like to share that um, whenever I speak, because I don't know about you, sometimes I go to meetings and I can hear like the first five minutes of the talk, and then I can't hear the rest because I'm like all up in my head and my feelings. So, um, you know, Lee asked me to speak on step three tonight. I don't really know how to fully speak about step three 
without sharing a little bit of my story because it really, like, you kind of need to know who I was and how I tick to understand, like, what it is I really need to do to stay sober. And, um, you know, I, um, so I briefly, you know, want to tell you a little bit about my step one and my step two before I really dive into step three. And I'm the only alcoholic in my family. I, I come from, um, there's three of us girls. My sisters are eight and 11 years older than me. My parents are still married. By no means was it like a perfect family, but like I was safe. I was cared for. There was a ton of affection. I had everything I needed and wanted. And like everybody drank watered down alcohol or they like didn't drink at all, you know? And so I didn't grow up thinking about alcohol. I didn't grow up seeing other people drink. I didn't see people ruin their lives from drinking. It was just like, I didn't think about drinking. I didn't see drinking. I had no experience with drinking. I just wasn't around it. And, um, but, you know, I was um, an uncomfortable kid, right? Like, I was happy, for sure, but I was uncomfortable. And some of my earliest memories are, like, just being afraid. I love, Perry said, like, she just doesn't see things right, you know? And, like, I don't see things right, and I definitely don't feel things right. I feel things really, really deep. Like, I feel things in every cell of my body. I feel my feelings in my hair. I mean, like, you know, like, from the top of my head to the tip of my toes, I feel, you know? And um, I'm a deep feeler, and I was as a kid, and I was riddled with fear, right? Like, my mom's going to die, my dad's going to die, my sister's getting to get in a car accident, my parents are going on a plane, they're never going to come home, like, whatever, right? Like, I... I mean, I know all kids can have those fears, but, like, I really had them. I really thought about them. I really felt them. And I internalized them, and I'd have these, like, stomach aches. I was, like, literally physically sick to my stomach from fear. And and I think the worst part about that for me was I had nobody to talk to about it. And, um, you know, we weren't really, like, a talking about our feelings kind of family. I don't really know many that were, at least when I was growing up. But, um... I felt really alone in the way that I felt, you know, and um, and so I felt all that stuff, and I felt all those fears, and I didn't talk to about anybody, and it was just me in my head, and I was alone. And um, and as I got older, right, like those things just started to change, right? The things that I'm afraid of, the things that I'm feeling, um, they just start to change, and I still don't talk to anybody about it, and I just start to grow more uncomfortable as a child. I'm just more uncomfortable, right? I'm like thinking about the future thinking about the past, I think about what other people are thinking about me, like, I just think about me essentially all the time, and, um, you know, definitely alcoholics are, like, a special breed of self-centeredness, but, like, all human beings have that, you know, it's not, like, so unique to us, we just, like, take it to rock-bottom levels, you know, and, um, and, and alcohol, most importantly, alcohol is my solution for that. You know, my sister is just like me, truly, just as self-centered, okay? Like, she's got emotional problems. She's not an alcoholic, you know? Alcohol doesn't change that for her, but it changes it for me. And, uh, and I didn't know it was going to be that way until I got there and I started drinking. And, um, you know, and, and when I first drank, my, the first time I drank, like, I really just did it to fit in. I mean, I did. I... It felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders, but that's just because I was so uncomfortable in my skin, right? It's like I'm 11, 12. I mean, middle school sucks, you know, for everybody. I had moved around a lot. I'm from, like, a little place in Canada, um, like, outside of Toronto, and 
you know, it was a really small suburb, and then my parents moved me to Singapore, so I'm, like, living in Asia, and then they moved me to Australia, which is, like, super cool, you know, but, like, as a child, it didn't feel cool, it felt awful, and you're just ripping me away from everything I know, and I have to make friends over and over again, and I feel a lot of feelings, and, you know, like, the world just feels really hard for me. And I have no one to talk to about it, and so I shoulder it all alone. And that first time I drank to fit in, right? I mean, like, this is what alcohol does for me. I drank. I don't, like, you know, I was, like, warm vodka, warm purple Gatorade. I just I just drank, you know? I just, like, go right into it, and I was afraid to do it. I was afraid I was going to get caught. I was, like, afraid of how I was going to feel. I mean, I'm just anxious, afraid. I'm a rule follower. And then, like, once enough of it gets in me, it's like... From my head to my toes, my whole, like, my whole physical being changes. Like, I relax and take it easy, and I don't struggle. And I am present in the here, in the right now, and able to enjoy my life for exactly what it is right then and there. Alcohol gives me the greatest gift, and that is the ability to be present in my skin and not think about anything else except what's right in front of me. It's really powerful, and um, I wouldn't have put those words to it at the time, but I remember the experience, and it is like, I remember how afraid I was before I drank. I remember how afraid I was when I sobered up, you know, like later that night. And um, But those, like, hours in between when alcohol was working in my body, I was not afraid, and I was able to enjoy my life and just have fun with these weird older guys that I should never have been hanging out with. And, um, you know, and my girlfriend and whatever we were doing, you know. And um, and I started off as a uh, moderate drinker. I picked what day I was going to drink on. I picked how many drinks I was going to have. Like, just like the book talks about, I had full control over my drinking, um, you know, when I first started drinking. Um, but like along the way, as I start growing up and I get older and I get in high school, you know, I just drink to fit in. I just drink to be like other people. And, um, and I, and I, and eventually it like turns into like, okay, well now I don't pick how many I'm going to have. And I, and I got to a point in the middle of high school where almost every time I drank, I blacked out. And, uh, and then eventually it's not like, I don't get to pick how many I have. I mean, I'm not picking how many I have, and then I'm not even picking what days I drink on anymore. You know, like I'm not going to drink on a Tuesday. I've definitely lived a double life. I wanted to like follow all the rules in high school and get good grades and get a scholarship to college and like live this American dream because I live in Florida now and I have never lived in the U.S. and I just like wanted to like do what you guys do here, <laughs> whatever that is, you know, whatever I was told to do when I got to high school here. And, um, and I just couldn't, you know, like I couldn't because all of a sudden it's like, I'm just chasing the effects produced by alcohol, you know, and up until that point, had I done anything really bad? Like, no, I hadn't, you know, I started lying to my parents and, you know, not telling them where I was and, you know, I'd drink and drive and I'd stash some like illegal stuff in my car here and there, but like, I don't consider that to be that bad. And, um, you know, and so, like, I'm doing that here and there, but overall, right, like, I feel like I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. I'm having fun. I'm like, literally, this is fun. I felt like these were the best years of my life. I was, like, 16 years old, and um, and I felt on top of the world, and, like, I just fit in, and um, and then it's just, like, that top of the world just started to become, like, a really steep roller coaster, and I, I couldn't tell you why. I couldn't tell you what happened, but... You know, in the big book, it talks about um, 
how, you know, maybe there are some young people who could stop and basically, like, not be alcoholic, right? But, but most of them don't want to. And, um, and that was me. I never considered stopping. I never wanted to stop. I love the effect I get from alcohol. And um, I'm so self-centered and insecure, pretty low self-esteem, just always comparing myself to the other kids, you know, and my friends and, you know, and the normal stuff that happens for kids. But um, alcohol fixes that for me, so I just keep going. And, um, you know, here's the thing. It's like I I didn't realize the lengths that I would go to to get that, that effect produced by alcohol. I just had no idea what I was up against when I was 16 years old. But I very quickly learned by 18 years old what I was, at, what I was up against. And, um, and I did things, and I went places, and I hung out with people, um, and I used, you know, like other substances in ways that I thought I would never use them um, until I got to a really dark place. And, uh, and I still very much lived that double life where I tried to keep up appearances with my parents or my sisters and some groups of friends that... You know, then I have the boyfriend who really knows how I'm living, and, you know, like, he's selling a bunch of drugs, and we have undercover cops watching us, but I'm telling my parents, like, I have a full ride to college, and I'm going to go join this organization and this club, and, and then I just fail out of college, you know? And so when that happened, the cat was out of the bag, and I just kind of stopped caring as much, you know? It was almost like it gave me an excuse for things to get worse when things were already pretty bad. And, um, you know, and I... um I'm so uncomfortable when I get sober. I'm so uncomfortable, right? It's like by this point, right, by like 18, 19, 20 years old, by the time right before I got sober, you know, like when I sobered up, the only thing that I could think about was this list of like 80 things from like get an oil change, you know what I mean? Um Pay off like your credit card, which I was never going to be able to do like ever, you know, to like call your sister who has cancer, you know, like, go drive home and see your dad who has cancer, you know, like, to don't go to the bar and tell people about your family members that have cancer just to get some cocaine and beer, you know, like, don't do that, you know, and it's like, that I sober up, and it's like this list of, like, everything I have to change, all the lies that I've told, all the people that I've hurt, all the money that I've stolen, all the money that I owe to the bank, you know, like, and, like, get an oil change and, like, maybe go to the doctor to figure out why you have, like, a staph infection that won't go away for five months, you know? Like, I mean, like, I sober up and it's literally, like, you know, it's all that I think about. And I'm so uncomfortable from my head to my toes. It feels like there's, like, a motor in my body and it's just, like, always going and it's always propelling me and I'm anxious, and my heart races, and I sweat, and I'm so tense, and I cannot stand the way that I feel. I cannot stand the way that I feel. I can't tolerate it. It's unbearable. I do not want to live this way, and I drink again. And I tell myself it will be different, and then there were times where I knew it wasn't going to be different, and I just did it anyway. And I was fully physically addicted to alcohol and many other things, and I tried many different ways to stop many different ways other than Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, but I tried many different ways to stop and I could not. And, um, you know, in the, in step three, before we got there, you know, it talks about always being collision with something or somebody and how we try to live by self-propulsion. And what I didn't know at the time was like, I just was living life to get my way. 
That's just what I do. I li- I'm just so uncomfortable, and I'm so concerned with how other people see me, and I'm, I have so much self-doubt and insecurity that like all I care about is like getting rid of that feeling and changing it and making it go away and seeking my comfort. So all I want to do is be comfortable. And that's why I drink, because it makes me comfortable, you know? And so I live by self-propulsion. I live my life to get my own way. And my life is a big effing mess, you know? I mean, really, right? Like, I can't hold a job. I have no money. I can barely stay in the community college I'm going to. My family knows that I'm dying, you know? Like, I mean, like, I one night I just wanted some Ambien from my mom, and I didn't want to have to steal it because I knew I'd get caught. I told her my boyfriend died. You know, like, he didn't die. You know what I mean? Like, he's still alive today, you know? Like, but but my point of telling you this, right, it's like, that's who I am. I live my life to get my own way. I will make up the death of another human being who I still want to date just to change the way that I feel. If that's not self-will, I don't know what is. And the scariest part to me is how easy it is for me to do it. Literally, a lie like that just flies out of my mouth. I don't even need premeditation. It's just there. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just really good at that. And um, and I got to tell you, it's so lonely. It's so lonely to live that way. Like, alcoholic loneliness, I can't even really put it into words. But the only reason, like, the loneliest I felt was when I sobered up and I was alone with my problems. It was just me and my problems. And when I would wake up in the morning knowing that there was just, like, a bottle of liquor in the fridge and maybe something stashed in my drawer, I would open my eyes and I swear to God I felt left alone because I knew exactly what was going to make me feel better. Um, That's alcoholism. That's what alcohol does for me. That's what alcoholism is. I'm self-centered to the extreme. I am selfish. I am a comfort seeker. I'm not a bad person. I did bad things, and I hurt people, but I am not a bad person. I was a survivor. I was literally just doing what I thought I had to do to survive, and in the process, there were a lot of bodies that I left around me, you know, because I live by self-propulsion, and I will do anything to make myself feel better because I just can't stand the way that I feel. And um, and we laugh in Alcoholics Anonymous like about our past and the things that we did. But truly, on the other side of that, there's like a lot of sadness in there. There were a lot of dark times. And now that I have kids of my own and I think about what it would be like if one of them went through that, it makes me feel sad about the things that I went through. So we laugh in here, but I'm also sad about those things. It's sad. You know, my story, um, it's my story, right? And um, and I'm grateful for it. Um, but it's complicated, you know? And um, and I'm grateful I'm sober today to be able to share it. But, um, you know, so the, what happened to me and how I got to Alcoholics Anonymous is, you know, I had a trip to go see my sister whose cancer came back for the second time. I was 21. She was 32. And my sister is someone who's done, like, everything right her whole life. Literally, she's done everything right her whole life, you know? And um, and here she was. She did not choose this. She did nothing to deserve this. And she was going through this. 
And I'm there, and the whole trip, I'm just like, I'm 21, my family's like, you can drink around us, you know? And, um, and like, as soon as they would turn their backs, I'm like going to the liquor cabinet to make my gin and tonic stronger because I need to drink as much as I can that night so I can get through the next day at the hospital. And that's what I did. And, um, and my sister is so amazing. She just, I'm her little sister. She's like a second mom to me. And all she cared about was making sure that I was okay. The night before, she was about to have, like, her entire neck sliced open. You know what I mean? Like, I just, that's who she is. And uh, and when she got out of that surgery the next day, you know, I mean, listen, I was already tired, right? I had moved to a new city. I was dating two guys at the same time. One of them gave me a little bit of this. The other one sold some of that, you know, and both of them, like, I drank with both of them. You know, like, I, I, my car is barely working, my cat's barely alive, you know, like, I'm, I'm yellow, I'm swollen, I have track marks on my arms, I'm a disaster, and, um, you know, I was tired, and my sister woke up from surgery, and I got one look at her, and, um, and it's definitely not the scariest thing that's ever happened to me, not the scariest I've ever been. You know, um, not even the saddest thing that's ever happened, right? It's not the thing, right, that you would say, oh, that must have been, like, your wake-up moment. But I saw her, and after she came to a little bit, like, again, she was just so concerned about how it was affecting me to see her like that. And um, and I just, like, saw the truth about myself and how I had made everything about me. And in a moment where she just should have been, like, concerned about herself, she was, like, thinking about me, like, oh, fragile Rachel, like, Rachel's going to go off the deep end, like, you know. And I went into the bathroom at the hospital, and I curled up in a little ball, and I just sobbed. And um, and I felt like I was at that jumping-off place. And, um, and I didn't believe in God because I never had one. I'm like a classic agnostic. My family's agnostic. I didn't grow up in a religion. I never went to a synagogue, a church, a Buddhist temple, like you name it, right? Like I never set foot in any of those places. My parents are good spiritual people that have morals, but they don't really talk about God. I don't even know if they believe in God. And um, and I and I didn't know that there was a God that, there, that was taking care of me or that was going to take care of me, and I didn't know there was another way of life. But I was at that jumping off place where I couldn't see my life with alcohol and I couldn't see my life without it and I just didn't know what the hell to do. And when I got back to Tampa after that trip, you know, um, I, I kept drinking my boxed wine from Walmart and, um, and I called my friend from high school who was on house arrest and I told someone the truth about the way that I was living. Like the whole truth. Not like, oh, I just drink, or I just have a drinking problem. It was like, no, I'm drinking, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I've got this going on, and this too, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to die, and I actually don't know how I'm not dead already. And um, and she said, well, you know, I'm on house arrest, and the only place I can go is AA and um, and church, you know? And, uh, and then one of the guys I was dating who I had told people were dead, but he wasn't dead, you know, he told me, you're being a bitch. You should really go to a 12-step program. And I was like, I don't know what that is, you know. And uh, and then I got a psychologist because um, I had health insurance under my parents. And I told him all about my drug-addicted boyfriend. And he said, like, basically, oh, honey, you can spend your money in my office or you can go to AA where they will save your life. And, um, and I, you know, he totally took my money and I kept going to his office. But... Um, <laughs> But the day came where I had my last stale glass of white wine, and um, and I looked up 
um, Hillsborough County Central, Central Office, and this guy named Tim answered the phone, and he told me where to go to my first AA meeting, and I went. And it was 8 p.m. Lake Magdalene on a Monday night, and I heard a speaker share his story, and he shared about his alcoholism, and it didn't matter how old he was. None of his DUIs made a difference to me. The fact that he'd been divorced or bankrupted or his kids had been taken away from him, and all I had was a cat, I, you know, that I didn't take very good care of in a car, and my parents kind of helped pay my bills, and, you know, no one wanted to marry me, and it was a miracle at that point that I had never had a child, because it's not like I was doing anything smart, and, um, you know, like, our circumstances were different, but he shared about his alcoholism, and he shared about recovery, and in that meeting, I knew that I had whatever he had, and, um, and that was alcoholism, and I went back to another meeting, and I got a sponsor, and, um, you know, who then eventually, through her and her son, um, would take me to the Tampa Bay Young People's Group where I would meet the sponsor that took me through the steps. And um, and I'm so grateful for the people in AA that have taken their free time to read the book with me, to share their stories with me, to sit with me after a meeting and explain the steps to me. And uh, my first sponsor was so busy. Like, she had a busy, full life, and she met with me every week, once a week, to read the first 164 pages of the book with me. And um, and she she showed me what it meant to be alcoholic, right? That it's like a problem that centers in my mind, but it's in my body. And, like, my mind can be really healthy. Like, Rachel, like, you could get really healthy in your mind one day, but if you take a drink, all bets are off. It's both. Your body will never be healed of this allergy to alcohol, you know? And I had to believe that it was not just a problem in my body, but it was also a problem in my mind. And I told her, like, okay, but, like, how am I going to believe in God? Because I wasn't, like, raised in a religion. It makes me very different. Like, everyone in this country is religious, and I'm not. And everyone in AA has a religion. They just don't talk about it, and I know it, and I'm different. And um, she read the agnostics with me. I understand. I understood zero words in it, like literally zero words. I think I, I really didn't start to understand the agnostics till I probably had like a couple years sober and read it with somebody else, you know. And um, and she just looked at me and she said, Rachel, just look for the God everywhere. Look for the coincidences, those aha moments. Just look for the God everywhere. And that's what I did. And I found the God in my home group. Um, and the people that greeted me in line and shook my hand, that remembered my name every day, every week I went back, that saved me a seat. You know, I never had to walk to the bathroom alone. I never smoked a cigarette alone. I rarely drove to a meeting alone. There were women that had cars that just asked me to come pick them up because they knew I needed somewhere to be and something to do and to feel useful. And um, I never had to carry a conversation alone. I was always welcomed. Nothing was too exclusive for me. And as my husband always says, there's always room for one more. And those are the people that I got sober around. There was always room for one more, and they always included me, and they brought me everywhere with them, even when I didn't really know if I was alcoholic. And um, and so I started looking for the God everywhere, and I started to see it. And uh, and I and I went through these chapters with my sponsor, and we got to step three, and we read read through the whole thing, and we talked about my selfishness and my self-centeredness, and how I live by self-propulsion. And I was like, oh yeah, but like that's when I was drinking. Like I'm like a couple months sober now. And she's like, aren't you talking to that guy that like you shouldn't be talking to because it's really inappropriate? You know, like. 
aren't you skipping your grand sponsor's anniversary dinner to drive out of town to see that other guy that smokes weed, you know? Like, aren't you, like, telling me lies about why you can't make meetings and then, like, emailing me with an inventory a week later with the truth, you know? She's like, aren't you still spending money on your parents' credit card? Like, oh, I think you're still living by self-propulsion, you know? And, um... I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, got it. You know, like, light bulb moment. I'm, like, two months sober. I'm still really selfish and self-centered, and uh, and everything is about me, and I still live my life to, like, take my comfort, you know? And um, and then we got to the part in step three that talks about fear. God. And, um, and uh, how I'm, like, riddled with, like, hundred forms of it. And how it dictates everything in my life and my every move and every decision I make, you know? And um, and that's why I'm so uncomfortable all the time. It's because I'm so afraid, you know? Like, I'm afraid of doing the wrong thing. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. I'm afraid I'm not going to get what I want, you know? Like, and, and if I don't get what I want, it's going to be the end of the world. It's, like, catastrophic. Like, I, I have no faith. I don't know what it means to have faith. I've never had faith. I've never made decisions on faith. At least so I thought. I didn't know that coming to Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time was a decision made on faith. I had no idea. And um, and I just still live my life to get my way. And she had to point out all that to me and that it was just driven by fear. And, you know, like I got sober and I got more anxious. I just was like, what's this? You know, like. What is this? I'm sober. I'm going to meetings. I'm meeting friends. I'm fellowshipping. And I'm smoking like a pack and a half of cigarettes a day, like shaking like this out of my skin and sweating through the day, you know? Like, I'm, I lay awake in bed and my heart pounds out of my chest, you know? And I still have that tension from, like, my head to my toes because I'm so painfully anxious and uh, and afraid of life, you know? And, um, and that's because... I didn't know that I didn't see life in the right way, you know, like, everyone is out to get me, I can't trust you, you don't have my best interests at heart, you know, like, oh my god, they're dating, I hate them, they shouldn't date, what does that have to do with me, you know, like, I mean, really, like, I just, I didn't see or feel or experience life in the right way, everything that happened in my life was so deeply personal, you know, and not in a good way. And um, and as a result, like, I'm afraid of everything all the time. And I have very little self-esteem because I had not been living in a very esteemable way, you know. I didn't know what it meant to feel secure in my skin or like who I am or be comfortable. Like, I have no idea what that means or looks like or feels like. I don't know if I ever have. I'd like to think maybe I did when I was like a baby, you know, because I come into this world with, I'm not burdened by anything, you know, but um, I just didn't know what that was. And so I just always live in anticipation that something's not going to go right, that something's going to go wrong and somebody's going to screw me over, you know, and, uh, and I'm afraid. And, um, and my sponsor read all that in step three with me and she had me read 60 to 64 every morning when I woke up to just be reminded of exactly who and what I am. And I would complain to her and be like, don't you know how bad I already feel about myself, you know? Like, what is the point of reading this? And she's like, it's constructive. It's to show you 
that you don't have to be this way. We're all this way, but you don't have to be this way. There's a better way to live. And if you maybe read this in the morning, you can set an intention for the day to try to live a different way. And um, and we got to the part, right, like that um, Meg read, like, this is the how and why of it. We have to quit playing God. It doesn't work. Like, he's the father. We're his children. And I just was like, what does that even mean? Like, I barely believe in God. Like, I'm starting to see the coincidences everywhere, but that language is, like, a little heavy for me, you know? And um, I don't know if I can do that. What does it mean to turn it over? I'd go to meetings. People would share the story about the frogs and the log and the jumping. And I'm just like, I don't get it, you know? And um, And my sponsor was very clear to me. She said, you want to know what it means to turn your will and your life over to the care of God? Turn your will and your life over to the care of Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps, okay? She's like, that's it, plain and simple. She's like, write a fourth step. Let's do that. You know, like, let's immediately jump into writing and do a fourth step. And uh, and so I did that. But um, she was very clear that um, this turning my will and my life over to the care of God and Alcoholics Anonymous looks like me getting a home group. And showing up to it and not like going on a date instead of being at my home group. There are like six other nights of the week. You know what I mean? Like the date doesn't have to be that night, you know? Um, getting there early, staying after, treating my home group like it's a home, like I'm a hostess and I welcome new people when they're there, going to fellowship, inconveniencing myself for Alcoholics Anonymous, getting service commitments and going through the rest of my steps. You know, and uh, and I am just blessed. I, you know, I got sober in a really big young people's meeting, and um, and they were so active and alive and on fire for AA. I mean, like seven days of the week, I hung out with people in AA till 2 a.m. You know, around bonfires, sharing stories, smoking cigarettes inside at the Red Door, which is like the only meeting you could do that at. You know, and um. And I just was so busy in Alcoholics Anonymous that, like, I could feel it, right? Like, I could feel it, and I was willing. And my sponsors, like, that willingness, you know, because I, I went to a 12 and 12 meeting, and I remember, like, reading Step 3 in the 12 and 12, and all I just talked about was, like, willingness. Like, just say yes, you know? Like, the hang after the meeting is at Tijuana Flats. Like, oh, Rachel, you hate Tijuana Flats? Who cares, you know? Like... Don't go to the other place. Go with the flow, you know? And it's like saying yes in Alcoholics Anonymous to the things I don't want to do, the things that seem really stupid. How is that going to help me? That's not going to help me. I have real problems. I have real problems. You know, like I made a mess of my life that I like really have to fix. And I'm tired, and I don't want to do that, and I don't want to go to that fellowship, and I don't want to get a corrections commitment, and I don't want to bring a meeting into that juvenile detox where all they do is throw stuff at me and laugh at me. Like, I don't want to do those things. How are any of those things going to help me in my problems? And that's what step three is talking about, like, take a leap of faith, you know? And um, turn your life over to AA. When we tell you to do something in AA... Just do it. And um, and that's what I did until I got to my amends. And, uh, you know, and, and, in, and in step three, in the 12 and 12, which is not in front of me, but it's here. But anyways, I think on the, like on the last page somewhere, 
It just talks about how step three and this willingness and what we learn in step three, right? To just get rid of self and just, like, go with someone else's idea, you know? The God idea, the AA idea, the doing the right thing idea, the living by principles idea, right? Like, be free from self, right? Like, that, like, foundation, those principles, that lesson I learned in step three, I need to then apply that through all of my steps. And... um and that's what I had to do. And I got to places in my steps as I stayed sober where, you know, there were things I didn't want to do. There were amends I didn't want to make, you know. And my sponsor would, like, bring me back to step three and read these pages with me and say, Rachel, why don't you just go with the AA idea? You know, like, why don't you just try that? Because hasn't it served you well so far? And um, and she was right. And I have these remarkable step three stories and I'm just I'm going to read the promise again because it's so good it says when we sincerely took such a position which is like making AA the center of my life making the steps the center of my life the most important thing in my life and listen I was 21 when I got sober I had all the time in the world there are people I mean like I sponsor a woman who's a single mom who has an autistic younger daughter, a middle daughter with two little babies. Her middle daughter is bipolar and has two little babies. She's 20 years old and an older daughter, you know, and she's getting sober with all that going on, right? So when I got sober, I was blessed. I had all the time in the world, no responsibilities, not really a care, except for the mess I had made and, like, the amends I had to make and all the money I owed, you know, and, like, cleaning up my health, right? But not everybody gets sober with, like, unlimited free time to hang out seven days a week. But even then, there are always there are always things that we can do in AA, and AA can always be the center of your life in a way that fits with whatever you have going on with you, and it will still work. It will still work. And um, so when I sincerely take that position where AA is the most important thing in my life, I'm turning my life over to the AA idea the guidance of my sponsor, the people in my home group, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. If I stay in the middle of the boat, if I stay in the center of AA, if I inconvenience myself for this place and I go with the AA and the God idea, then I will be provided with what I needed. Established on such a footing... We became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. Man, I have a lot of little plans and designs, you know? Like, um, I didn't know what the, and you know why it says little? Because, like, they are little compared to what my God wants to give me. I have all these ideas about what I want in my life and how I want my life to go and who I want to marry and when I want to marry him and how much money I want to have and what my job's going to look like and what I look like on the outside. I got a lot of little plans and designs, you know, and um, and they're little because God has so much more in store for me in the way of experiences and I just have no idea. And so I'm just going to share those stories with you Um and that's how I'll tell the rest of my story for the meeting. So I know one story um, that I was thinking about actually the other day because I was sharing about it with a sponsee is like early on in my sobriety, like I had a car. I just had a car when I got sober. I was lucky and I had like maybe four months sober. And I was at a meeting and there was a woman there who was, I don't know, maybe she was like 28 or 29 and she was in a wheelchair 
and she couldn't really talk, and she couldn't really do anything for herself. And it's because she got in a drunk driving accident, and that's what happened to her. And uh, she was living in an assisted living facility with, you know, all elderly people. She was the only young person there, but she had to live in an ALF. And um, and my sponsor was like, she needs rides to meetings. And I'm like, I don't know how to fold a wheelchair, you know? Like, that's uncomfortable. She can't even really talk. What are we going to talk about, you know? Like, I'm so self-centered, you know? And my sponsor's like, she needs rides to meetings. Did you hear me? Like, go pick her up. So we would text. And I started to begrudgingly pick her up and take her to meetings. You know, I resisted. And my sponsor would be like, did you pick her up for a meeting yet? She needs rides. What are you doing? Like, don't just go hang out with your friends. Go pick someone up and then bring them to the meeting where your friends are. That's what we do. And so I just started to do it, and I started to pick this girl up and bring her to meetings, and um, and it was uncomfortable, you know, and it was foreign to me, and um, and it's like, and that, you know, that drunk driving accident was somewhat, you know, recent, and it had been a long recovery for her, but when she started going to meetings, that's because that's the first time she was really able to do something like that, and um, and I just started picking her up and bringing her around to meetings with me, and I picked her up every week, you know, and what happened over the next year was like I developed this friendship and um she couldn't really talk when I picked her up and um you know by the time she picked up her one year medallion and she asked me to give it to her she was in a walker you know um she could talk we talked on the phone she had a home group she had a fellowship about her and um and I was a witness to all of that through all my self-centeredness and all my plans and designs, and I'm probably going to fail out of college again because I still can't really go, and I've got amends I don't want to make, and, you know, things are still not great with my parents, and I want to date this guy, and he wants nothing to do with me, and all of that is really painful, you know? And I'm going through all of that, and I'm not getting my way, and my plans and designs are not unfolding the way I want them to, and I have this experience watching this woman change in AA emotionally, physically, spiritually, and it changed me on the inside. You know, it changed me on the inside. Those are the remarkable things that happen, you know. I um, I, I was sober in AA 10 years when I decided to um, start a family with my husband, who's also in AA. And... Um, you know, we, I was like the kind of person in AA, I was like in AA all the time, right? It's like I'm at my home group early, I'm baking the cookies, I'm there every Saturday night, I hang out like five nights a week, like I just, right, I like live my best life active in AA. I mean, I don't, I make a lot of mistakes, I don't do things perfectly by all means, but I am like active in my home group and in my fellowship and in going to meetings, and then I have a baby, and that really messes that up, you know? And, um... And it, and truly, right, like, hands down, best thing I've ever done. Hardest thing I've ever done, best thing I've ever done. And, um, I had a really hard time though. And, um, you know, and I got, and all these people in AA showed up for me, and, um, my home group showed up for me, and I ra- I did not raise my daughter alone. My husband and I raised our daughter surrounded by men and women in AA. And um and then we wanted to have um another baby and um and I was super excited about it and I got pregnant and um and I found out I was pregnant. We were actually away at this AA retreat 
and then two weeks later, um, I had a pregnancy loss. And, um, and I, you know, I'd never really felt sadness like that before, um, in that way. And, uh, and I didn't want to share about it with anybody. And, um, I was uncomfortable and I just felt like I was the person that sponsored a lot of people. I don't have anyone to lean on. I don't have anyone to talk to. And, um, and I told people about it and they showed up for me. And, um, and then I got pregnant again. And, uh, and I was excited and everything was going really well until I got to the ultrasound and there was no heartbeat. And, um, you know, and I was heartbroken and, um, and in a lot of pain. And, um, and then the next day I had to get like a breast biopsy, which was like just a terrible, terrible timing, you know? And then my friend Kelsey, who's here tonight actually, who had just moved to Miami, the day after I had my DNC, she showed up the next day with a plate of cookies, chocolate chip cookies, and she drove me to my breast biopsy. This woman in AA, I didn't even know that well, just came and showed up with me. I didn't have to go through any of that alone, and I just really didn't want to go to meetings. And I, like, really didn't want to answer the phone for people I sponsored, and I was just really sad, you know? And um, and then my friend called me, and she's like, my speaker at this treatment center bailed. Like, will you go? And I'm like, where is it? She's like, here's the address. I'm like, that's an hour away from my house. You know, like, I got a baby. I'm not feeling so hot. I'm really sad. Like, I don't want to go to a treatment center an hour away from my house. And uh, my husband was like, yeah, you should probably say yes. And so I said yes. <laughs> and I went. And... um you know, and I'm kind of getting the timing off anyway. This was right before I had had the ultrasound. Um, anyway, so I go to the treatment center. I knew things weren't quite right, and I knew I had this ultrasound coming up. And I go to this treatment center, and it's a women's treatment center, and it's a women's and children's treatment center. And I walk in, and it's like a room full of women in treatment holding newborn babies. And I was like, all right. I was like, I'm here for it. This is an interesting experience and weird timing. And uh and I just was in that meeting, and I shared my story to all these women, and um, and then I, you know, I just opened up. I was like, I'm scared, you know, I just lost a baby, and I, I feel like I've lost the other one, and, and I feel like it's happening. I'm going to find out about it, and I just want to let you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to stay sober, is what I told these women. I'm going to stay sober no matter what because of AA. And after the meeting, all these women gathered around me, and they said they wanted to pray with me, and they held my hands. And they said a prayer with me. And they prayed for me, these women that had two months sober, one week sober. And um, I just cried on my way home. And I said, thank you, God. And thank you, AA, for these opportunities to say yes and show up. And show me that you are real and you are working in my life. And I have a primary purpose that is bigger than all of this. And um, and if I had said no, I would have missed out on all of that. If I hadn't turned my life over to AA and God, I would have missed out on all of that, on that experience. And then I found out, you know, I, um, that I lost the baby. And that same day that I found out, two women from that treatment center called me. One of them was like, I don't want to be in AA, and I didn't relate to your story, but I just wanted to see how you are, you know. And um, I was like, great, thanks. And um and then the other one called me and asked me to be her sponsor, you know. And that's that woman I actually shared about earlier, and um, and I still sponsor her today. And um, and I just said, thank you, God, for giving me opportunities to show up in Alcoholics Anonymous in the darkest of times and the saddest of times to know that you are real, you are here, you are working in my life, you know. 
And, um, and, you know, I did ultimately have my son, right? It's like, which is beautiful, but that's not for me the miracle of the story because not everybody gets that happy ending. The remarkable things that follow when I let go and I let God and I say yes are those experiences where I show up to the treatment center and I feel the presence of God and I drive home and I sob and I say thank you. When those women call me and they ask me for my help and I feel a sense of purpose, those are the remarkable things that follow when I turn my will and my life over to the care of God and I end. And that's step three. And when I say no, and I'm not just talking about like, you know, I say no because I really have to say no. Because, you know, I mean... Sometimes there are, you know, we, life is life. I can't say yes every second of every day, right? But it's like those moments where I'm like willfully saying no when I know this is a moment in my life that I could inconvenience myself or AA. Those are the things that I miss out on. Those are the experiences that I miss out on. And, um, and Alcoholics Anonymous in step three have changed me. It's changed me from the inside. Saying yes to the steps, to the work, to looking at my past, to like looking at my secrets, the behavior about myself that disgusts me, my insecurities, all my self-doubt, the things that were traumatic, the things I have to forgive people for that I think are unforgivable, the amends I have to make, right? Like all the effort that I have to take here. Um, it's capable and possible because of step three in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, and I'll just share this with you because it's, I've been going through it recently and, um, and I've had this kind of step three spiritual experience in the past couple of weeks, even though I've had a hard couple of weeks. Like, I've spent the last seven years at the same job, and I'm an attorney. And so, like, you know, I spend just as much time with the people that I work with that I do with my family. I work a lot. And, um, and I'm an emotional person, and I just, like, bring people in. And so these people have become my family, and I decided to resign and take a new job. And um, and it was a really hard decision for me to make. I, it really was. I was talk about anxiety, fear, self-doubt. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. And, um, you know, and, and when I announced that I was quitting my job, um, all these people from the top to the bottom of the organization reached out to me and begged me to stay and tried to make me an offer to stay. And I sat in rooms with people that looked me in the eye and said, you make this place vibrant. You bring people together. You're a great worker and a great example. And people look up to you. And you're the type of person we don't want to lose. And um, and I sat there and I listened. And I just thought, like, no, not like, oh, this is so great for my ego. I mean, it was very validating. But <laughs> the best part of it was I know those things about myself today. I know I am those things. I was so insecure. I felt so low. I had such low self-esteem when I got to AA. I really did. I did not like myself and who I was. I did not know how to do that. And um, over the past 14 years and through the steps and these experiences and saying yes to the spiritual work, I've become a person where I know who I am. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. But I know who I am, and I like who I am. And I never thought that was possible here. Those are the remarkable things that follow when we do the work here. And there's no timeline for when they happen, you know. 
and there's no timeline for when you're going to hear it. My self-realization was just in the past two weeks in the strangest of circumstances, you know? But they happen here every day. And because I've changed and because I'm different, I don't have to drink today. I have a defense against drinking. And I'm forever grateful for that. And um, I just really hope that somebody was helped tonight and that you know that AA can be a magic place for you too. So thanks for letting me share. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.